Titus chapter 1 is our passage. We've read it already. Our text this morning and the sermon this morning is really a direct continuation of what we talked about last week. The real unit in Titus here is Titus 1, 10 to 16, and we've split that up into two different Sundays. Last week we looked at verse 10 and 11. This morning we're looking at verse 12 to 16. And in both of these messages, the same fundamental ideas will guide our thinking and our understanding of the context. So we'll start with the big picture. There are three books in the New Testament that we refer to as pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These letters are unique among Paul's letters because most of the time when Paul wrote a letter, he addressed it to a church, the entire congregation was the intended audience, but in these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the intended audience is a pastor. And what you read when you read the pastoral epistles compared to the epistles written to churches is not a contradictory message, but it is different and it is complementary. And it's helpful to see how Paul spoke when he was writing to an entire church and how he spoke when he was writing to a pastor of a church. Our focus is Titus. It's a short letter. It has four simple sections, verse 1 to 4. In chapter 1 is the introduction. We've covered that several weeks back. Uh, The next section is about right leadership. We're in the middle of that section right now. And then there's two more sections to come, right doctrine and right living. So we're thinking about right leadership. One of the things that governs everything you might say about the book of Titus is Titus 1.5 where Paul says to Titus, I left you on Crete so that you might put what remained into order. So Crete is a sizable island in the Mediterranean. There were multiple churches on this island, and Titus's job was to go around to the various churches that Paul and his team had planted or that other churches had planted on the island of Crete and to put these churches into order. And that begins with right leadership. And we talked several weeks ago about the importance of elders. If you look at Titus 1, 5 to 9, there are all of these qualifications for elders, or you might call them pastors, or you might call them overseers. All of those words refer to the same office, and it has to be qualified men who fill that role within the church. And then we moved into verse 10 all the way through verse 16, as Paul is talking to Titus about one of the responsibilities of elder pastor overseers, which is silencing false teachers. And so the big idea we talked about last week uh, is the same for our passage this morning. We're in the same passage. The elders of a church are responsible for silencing false teachers. And all the things we talked about last week in verse 10 to 11 are sort of part one of what this looks like, at least in Paul's mind and in God's mind. And then verses 12 to 16 continue to elaborate on what it looks like for pastors to silence false teachers. So I want you to stop this morning and think back. I would like for you to take a moment to think about your childhood. Some of you are there right now, so you just have to go back about five minutes ago to the drive to church. Some of you have to go back a little bit farther than that. But I want you to think about your childhood And I want you to think about some of the things your parents warned you about when you were growing up. 
I posed this question on Facebook this week. I asked for your help. I said, tell me things that your parents warned you about when you were growing up. And there's all sorts of good stuff on that post. If you feel like you lack wisdom in life, you should just go circle through some of these comments. It'll be like a conversation with your grandpa or your grandma. Lots of sage wisdom in those comments. Let me just mention a few of them. I can't mention all of them. Uh, some of the things that our parents or grandparents warned us about, I don't know how to say this respectfully, but they turned out to be non-issues, non-issues. So let's just play a little picture word association here. These are non-issues that you were warned about. Number one, cracking your knuckles. If you crack your knuckles, you're going to have arthritis by the time you're 15. And most doctors say, no, that's not really how it works. That was a warning that didn't pan out. What about gum? Chewed up gum. Don't swallow it. It will be in your stomach for seven years. It will never leave. I remember as a kid the terror of thinking about a second piece of gum that I had swallowed and wondering, does that mean 14 total or did these run consecutive? How does that work? Not true. Don't sit too close to the TV. You'll go blind. We all work six inches from a computer monitor. And some of us can see better than others, but we have not all gone blind. What about swimming? If you eat anything, whatever you do, wait until you get into the pool. 30 minutes? Is that your rule at your home? 45 minutes? An hour? I don't know. You realize now that was just your parents' excuse not to have to watch you for 30 minutes in the pool and worry about you. It was not a legitimate warning. Somebody finally commented on this next one. I remember growing up, I think I had to have got this from my dad, with the idea that if you drive at night with your dome light on, you're likely to be arrested, that it was illegal. And I don't know when else you would need a dome light except at nighttime, but I had this idea. If you turn that dome light on, you better be quick and you better make sure there's no cops around because you might go to jail if you drive with your dome light on. And then there's all sorts of stuff about the microwave. Don't look into the microwave. Don't stand too close to the microwave. Apparently, it's safe to eat whatever comes out of the microwave, but you're not supposed to look at it when it's running. All sorts of warnings that probably panned out to be nothing. Now, some of the things we were warned about were legitimate issues. And two men made the exact same comment on my post this last week. Those men were Hunter Siegler and Jake Wood. And they both said that their parents warned them, if you make that ugly face, what's going to happen? You're going to get stuck like that. They were warned. I don't know what else to say. They were warned. You should listen to your parents. Children, you might grow up and look like Jake or Hunter. Don't make that face. Mason Harrington had an interesting comment. I've got a picture of the Harrington family up here. Uh, Chris is one of our elders. Chris and Lisa help coordinate our work in Kenya, nourishing the nations. Uh, Mason is the older brother. There's two brothers in the Harrington family. Mason is over there on the left next to Chris in the green, and then younger brother Logan is over on the right. Looks like the sun is glowing out of the back of his head. And Mason commented, one of the first comments, he said, my parents used to tell me, don't pick on your baby brother because someday he's going to be bigger than you. And it happened. 
it happened. We repeat that in our house often, having three older girls and a younger brother. You can pick on him now, but someday he's going to be bigger than you, and you may not like the result. There were good warnings, legitimately good warnings, that your parents offered. Again, I'm not going to give all of them to you, but I'll give you just a couple of them. One of them is money doesn't grow on trees. We all know that that's true. Some of your parents told you that nothing good happens after midnight, and while I agree with that, I would just give you the correct version is nothing good happens after 9.45. So 9.45, shut it down. One of you texted me last night at about 9.46, and I didn't reply till this morning at about 6 a.m. Why? Because nothing good happens after 9.45, or maybe it's midnight. A lot of you said that your parents warned you that life is not fair. They just wanted you to know going into life that it's not always going to be what you think of as fair, that sometimes difficult, challenging circumstances come your way. I thought about two from my parents. My dad used to warn me about the folly of being the kind of person who makes excuses for everything. And he used to tell me over and over and over again, excuses are made to satisfy those who make them. Don't be the kind of person that's always making an excuse for everything. Just take responsibility for whatever's going on in your life. Take ownership for the mistakes that you make. Don't be a person who always makes excuses. My mom, from the time I think I got my driver's license, or maybe even when I rode my bike around town, to the present day when I go visit Amarillo, always tells me when I leave her house, it's a dangerous world out there. So all sorts of warnings we get from our parents. We need our parents to warn us about things. While we're young, we often roll our eyes at those warnings, but we do need to hear them, and there is an awful lot of wisdom in the things that our parents tried to warn us about. I want you to understand that the Bible is filled with warnings. Warnings. And I want you to think with me just for a moment specifically about warnings that relate to false teachers. I want you to understand that when Titus is warning us about false teachers, this is not a one-off. This is not like Paul writing to Titus and he's on his hobby horse for the moment. He's on his soapbox for the moment. This is a warning that is echoed all the way through the New Testament. For example, Jesus in Matthew 17 warned us that false prophets would come like wolves in sheep's clothing. They will not walk into your church with a name badge that says, Hi, my name is false teacher. But they come in looking like part of the flock, when in reality they're wolves. Paul, to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, said to them, he warned them, When I leave, fierce wolves will come in and they will not spare your people. They will teach twisted, perverted things. And Paul wanted the elders of the church in Ephesus to know this. He warned them about what would happen. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, he said that false teachers would come with destructive heresies. False teachers do not just bring a different opinion. They bring heresies that are destructive to the church and destructive to the people of God. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, they will deny the one who bought them. In teaching false things, they are denying the truth of the gospel of Jesus who died for sinners. 
John, 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. We're going to talk about that word many in just a moment. Jude, verse 3 and 4, ungodly people have crept into the church. And these ungodly people who have crept into the church, they are denying the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they're twisting the grace of God into an excuse to sin. And he says, I had to write to you. I wanted to write to you about other things, but I felt necessary. I felt it was necessary to write to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because these people have crept in. Titus, if your Bible is open, you can look at verse 9 in chapter 1. There are people who come. They will contradict sound doctrine. Verse 10, they are insubordinate. They reject authority. They're empty talkers. They say a lot, but they really say nothing. Verse 11, they teach what they ought not to teach. Verse 14, they are turning away from the truth. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. So here's the reality for you and I as we think about these warnings. You have a choice set before you. The Word of God is warning you about the danger of false teachers. And you can go back in time and you can think about the thing with the swimming and the 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, you can't swim, you'll just sink to the bottom of the pool, whatever. And you can say, oh yeah, warnings like this. I've heard warnings like this all the time. I don't want anything to do with it. It's not that big a deal. Paul was just up in arms. He was over anxious. Uh, He was a little bit paranoid. And you can think this is really no big deal. It's not that important. Or you can listen to the Word of God. You can listen to this repeated warning from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter, from John, from Jude. Over and over and over again, the Bible warning us about the danger of false teachers. And as we continue this passage, I just want you to see three truths. All of these sort of piggyback on the idea that the elders of a church are called to silence false teachers. The first truth is this. I want you to see the reality of human depravity. This is a reality. Human beings are sinful. They're depraved. And Paul, in his comments in verse 12 and 13, is emphasizing the reality of our sinfulness. If you go back to verse 10, it's a verse we talked about last week. It's the beginning of this paragraph. Paul says this, Timothy, excuse me, Titus, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Many. We talked about that word many last week. Not a few, not watch here and there, not, well, if you live in the right place or the wrong place, you may come across false teachers. Many, he says, many false teachers are going to come, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Why is it that we should expect many to come? The answer is human sinfulness, human depravity. Verse 12, Paul says to Titus, one of the Cretans. Remember, Paul left Titus on Crete. If you were from Crete, you were a Cretan. So he's quoting someone from this island. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, here's the quote from a prophet who was from Crete, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, end quote. And then Paul says this at the beginning of verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. It's true. Paul is quoting a man named Epimenides. 
He lived about 500 years before Jesus was born in ancient Greece. He's recognized as one of the handful of truly great Greek philosophers. Uh, Some interesting things that you read about Epimenides in his life, you can take these or you can leave them. There's a legend that says he went to a cave to take a nap. He took a 57-year nap and he woke up a prophet. So some of you this afternoon might try that. You're going to lay down for the Sunday nap, 57 years, you might wake up and you might be a prophet. There's one legend that says Epimenides was covered in tattoos. He had tattoos all over his body, and I'm sharing this one for our middle school boys wherever you're at. The legend is that when he died, they saved his skin. I won't go into a lot of detail there, but they saved his skin to put it on display in Sparta so that they could remember him and his great wisdom and apparently his ink. There's all sorts of interesting things you might learn about Epimenides. What's really interesting is that Paul quotes him twice in the New Testament. He quotes him in Acts 17 when he was preaching at Mars Hill. And he talks about God not being far from each of us. He actually quotes in Acts 17 the same poem, the same stanza that he quotes here in the book of Titus. Epimenides of Crete. He wrote this poem. You can look it up and find the background on it. It's a poem about the island of Crete and the worship of Zeus and did Zeus have a tomb and all of these things. And in that poem, one of the things that Epimenides says about his own people is, Cretans, that would be us for Epimenides, we're all liars, we're evil beasts, and we're lazy gluttons. That's what you would call a stereotype. And your mother probably taught you at some point in time, amidst all those warnings, don't believe stereotypes. They're not all true. In fact, you should probably reject most stereotypes, which is fascinating because Paul quotes the stereotype, and then what does he say? He says it's true. This is true of the culture of the Cretans. Why would Paul say something like that? Why would he buy into a stereotype? Well, I think it's because the Apostle Paul knew that all human beings are sinners. It was Paul who pinned the words in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He knew that sin was a problem for all human beings. No one was exempt from the reality and the presence of sin in their life. And if you read Romans 3, just a few verses before 3.23, Paul quotes Ecclesiastes 7.20, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights, and it says, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. All people have a sin problem. All of us. And what the Bible says about your sin problem, my sin problem, is that there is no part of us that is left untouched or untainted by sin. That's the Reformation doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that all of us are as bad as we could possibly be. That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean that every society is as maximally evil as possible. This is what it means. Every one of us is a sinner. And sin affects and infects every part of who we are. We cannot escape our sin problem. We can't fix it. We can't get away from it. And as individuals, we gather together in collections of people, in cultures, in societies, in nations. And if something is true of all of the people in a collection of people, then it's also going to be true of 
the collection itself. And so Paul refers to this stereotype. It's not the only stereotype there was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you had a child who grew up, left home, and became wild and rebelled and lived a life of a, uh, just a total rebellious, ungodly person, a prodigal, you would say, my son or my daughter has become a Corinthian. It wouldn't mean that they moved to Corinth necessarily. It just means they've totally lost their mind. In the ancient world, likewise, there are multiple references outside of the Bible to people talking about liars and dishonest folks and people who look for a shortcut saying they're Cretans. They're Cretans. That's who they are. You understand that we could do the same thing with our culture in the United States of America. We could step back and we could look at American culture and we could say, here's some things that are generally true of us as a culture, not positive things. If you've traveled outside of your own culture to another part of the world to a different culture, you've probably found yourself thinking, look, I see some things in this different culture that don't seem quite right to me. I don't quite understand them. It seems like they're missing it here. And if you've traveled enough in a different culture, you come back to your own culture and you see it differently and you say, oh, well, we're missing some things too. I see more clearly our shortcomings and our faults. You understand, when Paul says the Cretans are liars and they're evil and they're lazy, he's not saying that these things are equally true of every person who lived on the island of Crete. But he's just stepping back and he's saying, all of the Cretans have a sin problem. And sin has infected and affected every part of them. And their culture is marked by the effects of sin. Just like ours, just like any other culture in the world. It's the doctrine of depravity. Of sinfulness. I think the book of Genesis describes it well. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's God looking down on individuals and human society after the fall and saying they're all sinners and they can't get away from their sin. Everything they do is tainted by sin and that's true collectively as you read on in the book of Genesis. It's why John Calvin is remembered among many other things as saying the human heart is like an idol factory. Sin has so warped our hearts that left to ourselves, we just keep trying to invent new versions of God that suit us. And it might be an idol of the hand, something you carve or something you fashion, or it might be an idol of the mind and the heart, something that you imagine and think about. But that's us. The human heart is an idol factory. Why would Paul want to drive this truth home about the Cretans and by implication about all of us? It's to reinforce this truth. Titus, many are going to come. Many are going to come. This is who human beings are apart from God's grace. Titus, you need to be on red alert because many will come. The second truth is this, the power of the gospel. Paul talks about the power of the gospel. Very briefly here, he'll expand on it later, but notice what he says in the second part of verse 13. The first part 
he says, you know, the testimony of Epimenides is true. And then he says, therefore, that word is important. Therefore, because of what's true about human beings in their sinfulness and their fallenness and their depravity, what's true about the Cretans, Titus, because these people are depraved, therefore, this is what I need you to do, Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Let me just point out a few words in this passage for your consideration. The first is the word rebuke. It's the Greek word elenko. It's a very strong word in the Greek language. Elenko is the word used to talk about John the Baptist in Luke 3. When John the Baptist was talking to Herod about his incestuous illegal, unlawful marriage to his brother's wife, John the Baptist was rebuking him. It's a strong word. John wasn't soft-pedaling anything. He wasn't pulling any punches. He wasn't holding back. He wasn't trying to sugarcoat it. He was just openly rebuking Herod for his sin. And that's the word that Paul uses here for Titus in relation to these false teachers. Titus, you're going to have to be like John the Baptist when it comes to false teachers. You're going to have to gird your loins and you're going to have to hit them square in the face. Not physically, but you're going to have to rebuke them, Titus. And not only do you have to rebuke them, but he says you have to rebuke them sharply. That's an adverb. The Greek word is apotamos. It means relentlessly, without ceasing. Titus, you're going to have to rebuke them and you're going to have to do it again and again and again And again, you're never going to get to the point, Titus, on the island of Crete where you have to stop rebuking false teachers. You're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to do it without ceasing. Rebuke them sharply, the ESV says. Why? What's the reason behind all of this? The reason is, verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. That word sound has a Greek root that we would use in words that sound like hygiene or hygienic. It means clean. And this is one of the most important things in Titus 1 that you can't miss. Because it would be really easy for us to hear all of these calls to rebuke them, to silence them, to stop them. And we all turn into a spiritual version of the Grinch. And we're just angry and we're mad at people, and we hate the world, and we're just generally grouchy people. That's not the point in rebuking these false teachers and rebuking them sharply. The point is not to embarrass them. The point is not to shame them. The point is not to win a theological argument and put yourself on a pedestal and give yourself a trophy. The the point is not to pat yourself on the back that you're so much better than them. The point is redemptive. It's so that they would be sound in the faith. You understand the Apostle Paul saw this play out in Corinth. Let me just draw your attention to what Paul said to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look what he says next. Don't jump ahead. Look what he says. Do not be deceived. Why would he say don't be deceived? 
It's because there was people in Corinth who were deceiving them. There were false teachers in Corinth saying all the list of stuff that Paul's going to talk about. You can do all of it and more and you can still go to heaven when you die. It's no big deal. God's grace has covered you, right? Well, you're good. You're covered. It's fine. Did you pray the prayer? It's okay. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You understand that list is not comprehensive, it's representative. That's not the list of only the sins that will keep you out, but it's representative of unrepentant sin in your life that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Paul says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You used to be like that, Paul says to the Corinthians. That's who you were. But then God did a work in your life. Paul preached, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. He opened the eyes of your heart so that you could see the glory of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. The foolishness and the weakness of what we preached in Corinth became the power of God to salvation. And God saved you. And He changed you. And He made you spiritually healthy when once you were sick. Paul saw that play out in Corinth, and it's what he wanted to see play out in Crete. Titus, many will come, and you have to silence them, and you have to rebuke them relentlessly, sharply. Why? Just because you're right and they're wrong? No. So that they might be sound in the faith. This is the pattern in the New Testament. God saves sinners through the preaching of the gospel. Men and women share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are lost, and God uses that to give life to those who are spiritually dead. Inherent in preaching the good news of Jesus Christ is talking about sin and unrighteousness and, yes, false teaching and the absoluteness of truth. Why in the world would you come to a room like this on a Sunday morning to listen to somebody like me talk about sin and unrighteousness and false teaching? You understand, there's plenty of places in town you could be right now where nobody's talking about that. I'm not just talking about breakfast joints. I'm talking about spiritual places you could go where no one will use the word sin. No one will talk about false teaching. We're all just in this together. Whatever you think, whatever we think, it's all going to be great. It's all going to be fine. Paul cuts through all of that. And he's not just wanting to fight. He's not just wanting to argue. He's not just wanting to prove that he's better or he's above anyone else. But he wants people to be sound in the faith. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, the reason that we talk about sin every week is not because we want to embarrass you. It's not because we want to shame you. It's not because we think we're better than you. It's because we want to see you be made sound in the faith. 
If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a member of this church, you're a Christian. The reason we talk about what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong, good doctrine, bad doctrine, over and over and over again, is not because we think we're just smarter than everyone else. It's because we understand the weight of what the Bible is calling us to in Titus 1. That you would hear the faithful word that's been entrusted to God's people, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and that false teaching that is deadly and destructive would be silenced. That brings us to the last truth in Titus 1. It's the danger of false teaching. Verse 10, Paul talks about the circumcision party. From what we piece together in the New Testament, this is a group of teachers who are essentially saying, we like Jesus, you like Jesus, we all like Jesus. We just are here to make sure that you're following all of the Old Testament laws completely and perfectly so that you can be a real Christian. So the Sabbath stuff, the circumcision stuff, the feasts, the dietary stuff, the cleanliness stuff, the purity stuff, all the stuff. We just want to make sure that you're doing all the stuff. That's the circumcision party. If you jump down to verse 14, Paul talks about Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Archaeologists have done a lot of digging on Crete. They found some amazing things. They found an entire culture that had been lost to time, the Minoan civilization. They dug it up. You can research it. It's fascinating. They also found a massive Jewish community on the island of Crete. Not surprising since Paul says that there is this Jewish form of false teaching on the island of Crete. There's this large Jewish community, a synagogue, all sorts of evidence of a Jewish culture present on the island of Crete. Apparently, what Paul's dealing with, and Paul knew this somehow, either having been there or heard a report, is that there are people saying, Jesus is great, we all love Jesus, you just need to do all this other stuff in order for you to really be in good with God. And Paul opposed that everywhere he came across it, in Galatia, uh, in Rome, everywhere that he came across that idea, he opposed it and he opposes it here with Titus. Notice what he says in verse 14. False teachers separate people from the truth and they call them to myths. That's a terrifying prospect. That you could be that close to the truth You could be lured away to a myth, something less than true. Look what he says in verse 15. False teachers, oh, they promise purity, they promise wholeness, but what they they can deliver on is defilement and unbelief. They cannot deliver on what they're promising. Verse 16, they profess to know God. They profess to know God, but they deceive people and they leave people unfit for any good work. You understand we're going to get to the good works part. Right leadership, right doctrine, right living. But you're never going to truly get to the right living part rightly if you don't have all of these pieces in place in order. There's a great danger in false teaching. Again, you have the choice, we have the choice to heed this warning or to roll our eyes at it. I pray that we heed it and we respond appropriately. Let me give you a few thoughts And how we ought to respond. Number one, elders must hold to the faithful word as taught and silence false teachers. 
the men in this church who hold the position of elder, pastor, overseer. I'll be honest with you, there's lots of things that fall under that umbrella. Practical things, day-to-day things. This is the central thing. That somebody who is an elder, overseer, pastor in this church hold to the trustworthy word as taught, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and that they are capable of and willing to, those are two separate things, silence false teachers. If you are a member of this church, there are lots of reasonable things you should expect from your pastors, elders, overseers. But at the top of that list ought to be this. That we hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The trustworthy word is taught. And that we're able and willing to silence false teaching. Secondly, churches must desire to be put into order. That begins with right leadership. If you've been around churches any length of time in your life, you know that churches often obsess about all the wrong things. It's very common today for churches to obsess on being cool. Looking a certain way, sounding a certain way, trying to mimic the concert on Thursday night, whatever. But it's common. There's a lot of churches today that are obsessed over gaining the applause of the world. What they really want deep down is for the world, this is shocking, but it's true, an unbelieving world to look at them and to say, well, look at those people over there at that church. They're the best. They're the, they're the top. There's this, that, the other. They just want the applause and the approval of the world. There's an awful lot of churches that are obsessed over clinging to tradition and nostalgia and a feeling of the past, and they often wrap that up in, well, we're, just trying to, we're just trying to hold to the truth and not change. Everyone else is just blowing away in the winds of culture, and we're trying to, to hold fast. But in their attempts to hold to the gospel, they lump a bunch of other stuff in with it, and they try to hold on to all that stuff too. Paul is saying to Titus, these churches need to be put into order. And I think as a church, obviously we want to seek the glory of God in our church. Obviously we want to see the gospel go forth from our church. But foundational to both of those things happening long term is being a church that's put into order. Right leadership, right doctrine, right living. You have a role to play in that. Not just our pastors, elders, overseers, but you have a role in expecting that from your church. Last. Sinners must confess their sin and believe in the person and work of Jesus. The reason that we talk about sin and false teaching and all the rest, again, is not to shame anybody. It's not to embarrass anybody. It's not to make anybody feel less than myself or any of our other leaders. But it's to see that maybe by the mercy of God, you would come to the point where you agree with God about your sin. The Bible calls that repentance. That you would confess your sin to God, agreeing with Him about your problem, agreeing that you're unable to fix that sin problem, and putting your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived for you, who died for you, who was buried and raised from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who was promised to come back for His people. If you'll do that, 
This morning you can be made sound. You can be made whole. You can be made complete. Not by myths or the commandments of men, but by the mercy of God received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again. And our prayer as a church is that if we live to see Him come, we are found put in order. Father, we're grateful for the Bible. We're grateful for the book of Titus. Grateful for the instruction and the wisdom in this letter. Thankful for the warnings that you have issued to us. Father, give us ears to hear what the Bible is warning us about. Help us to be as serious about this as you are. Father, we acknowledge this morning that we're sinful people, that left to ourselves we have no hope. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his life and his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his ruling and his reigning over the cosmos and his promise to come back for us. And Lord, until that day comes, we pray that this would be a church put into order. Lord, we need your help for that. We need your wisdom. We need perseverance. We need strength. We need unity. So Lord, we pray that you would give us what we need and what we lack. We pray that you'd be honored as we sing. We just want to express our hearts to you and we want to sing that Jesus is our only hope. All of our life is resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, be honored as we sing. We do it for your glory. We do it in Jesus' name.